Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Faith Christensen. I'm joined with Apex Director and Professor of History, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Dr. Douglas Ibsen. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Faith. I appreciate you uh, being here, Dr. Ibsen. Uh, Dr. Ibsen is the, uh, the, I don't know if winner's the right word, but the recipient. He is the 2024 Grace A. Tanner Distinguished Faculty Lecturer. And just for, for information, the Tanner Center sponsors the lecture every year, and a committee of faculty senators vet the proposals and, and select the the faculty lecture. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I should say to you, Dr. Ibsen is an assistant professor of music history and theory here at Southern Utah University. And when we start, I, I really just kind of like to ask a how we get to now question. So what, not, not how we get to this moment, but how do we, how do you become where you are? Uh, so my specialty is music history with a uh, particular emphasis on uh, Italian opera, but other operatic traditions um, as well. And when I was very young, about 13 years old, um, I saw on PBS um, my first Live from the Met broadcast. Uh, it was a, uh, a gala uh, com- uh, celebrating two of the great singers of the 20th century, Joan Sutherland and Luciano Pavarotti. And from the minute I saw it, I was absolutely smitten with this particular uh, style of music. I've always been interested in theater and music, so this was you know, a perfect combination of the two. Um, and so ever since then, I've been fascinated with all types of musical theater. Um, I did uh, musical theater when I was in high school, um, and then eventually um, uh, became a music major. And when I was looking at graduate studies at my doctoral level, um, what I really wanted to do was to uh, study Italian opera. And so um, I uh, put in an application for the University of Chicago, which uh, is uh, one of the great centers for Italian opera studies. And at the time, there was a scholar named Philip Gossett, um, who is you know, one of the great figures in the field. And I, you know, that was my, my, my dream, was to be able to go to the University of Chicago and study there. Um, and uh, fortunately, I was accepted. Um, and uh, that's the, the very short version of, of how I got here. So thanks to PBS. So thanks to PBS. It's absolutely thanks to PBS. I, um, I was born in St. George, um, but um, from age 4 to 14, um, I actually grew up in Panguitch, which is a very small southern Utah town, um, and then we moved back to St. George when I was just shy of my 14th birthday. Um, so uh, it was a remarkable uh, gift to me to have um, opera on television um, in this in this very small rural community and I was you know so uh, I'm always been big on uh, public uh, television public radio because of that so was there ever a a moment where you you made a conscious choice to say you talk about musical theater but you say hey I, I opera is the the vehicle that I want to go because obviously, I would imagine that Panguitch High or any of the St. George High Schools don't have an opera program. No, but it, it was just always something that, um, you know, that, that stuck with me. Um, I, I think in high school, my, my goal, I think I wanted to be a Broadway composer at some point. Um, and I, as, you know, as I got into um, my, my studies at the university and my graduate studies, you know, you, you sort of find where your talents really um, lead you, and it, and I just became more and more interested as I as I matured in this 
particular type of music theater, uh, what we usually call opera, which is you know a surprisingly difficult term to define in how we distinguish opera from other types of musical theater, and maybe we shouldn't. Um, maybe we should uh, embrace you know all types of lyric theater as um, as uh, on an equal equal footing. We probably should, but. Um, this tradition of opera, which involves usually what distinguishes it is a classical style of singing and classical training for those singers. Um, it has as much to do with that as it does the style of the music, but it just, there was something about it that just really spoke to me, um, and Italian opera in particular. So is there a, a distinction between Italian opera and German opera and French opera other than the language in which it is sung in? There, there are some distinctions, and there's some commonalities. Um, for, for example, I mean, French and German opera have traditions of comic opera where um, they involve not only singing but speaking, so they have spoken dialogue, something the Italians, um, you know, in, in, until very recently were, were fairly resistant to. There are musical styles. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, be, because Italy was the birthplace of what we now think of as opera, there was a lot of influence in, in both French and German opera from, from Italian. Um, but um, it, 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 it evolves over time, and you know, there are specific musical as well as um, dramatic conventions. Um, so uh, it, it really kind of depends on when and where. Uh, but still, Italian opera has this, this current that influences, I think, most types of, of opera. And there are American operas. Oh, absolutely. Correct. There, there are. Um, American um, English language operas and operas being um, uh, created and produced uh, all the time. Hmm, very interesting. So your your lecture today or this after this morning was on. Uh, it was entitled uh, "A Napoleonic Who Done It." Can an opera crack a century old case? So it's kind of like musical CSI. So can you briefly tell us, kind of set us up to what what we're talking about in your story? Yeah, so um, this particular uh, presentation that I gave uh, deals with a really interesting period in, in European history, which um, is um, toward the beginning of um, Napoleon Bonaparte's um, leadership of the French nation, um, just right when he's starting to consolidate power. And um, anytime that happens, and especially in, in this particular case, there are going to be people who are opposed to those efforts. Um, and um, that was certainly the case here, and um, there were a number of efforts to assassinate um, or otherwise do injury uh, to uh, Napoleon. His, his official title at the time was First Consul, but that, you know, he was essentially a, a dictator even at that point. Um, and uh, there was a very interesting case uh, that I came upon in my research where um, a, a group of conspirators were accused of plotting to stab him when he was at the opera. There was uh, supposedly this plot that they were going to break into his box at the opera um, and stab him to death. And I, I discovered this in my research and became fascinated because there were unanswered questions. Um, you know, was this really their idea or were they actually set up and entrapped into doing this? Uh, this w w which... Um, sounds like a you know a completely mad project <laughs> to just barge into the opera and try to kill um, uh, the, the leader of the nation. Um, and um, my doctoral dissertation dealt with music and politics, and, and um, in particular, 
um, th there was a whole tradition of scenes in opera where um, characters are swearing some sort of patriotic oath. And I, uh, in, in my presentation, I, I talk about, there's a very famous painting from the end of the 18th century by Jacques-Louis David that de depicts a, a, a scene from ancient Roman history of this kind of patriotic oath being sworn. Um, and that painting was recreated in this particular opera. And there was some... There's a legend that's associated with it that the conspirators were going to wait until the moment in that opera when they recreated the painting on stage with you know, live actors imitating the figures in the painting. Um, and this painting would have been very familiar. Very fa familiar. To everyone in, in um, there. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, and, and it's, it, it's become a, a really a symbol of this period. Um, so everyone would have recognized this painting. It was very famous. Um, and so I started looking at, you know, how we could make connections and I you know I was able to look and uh, the, the composer of the opera knew the painter very well they had met in um, in Rome um, years earlier and you know they clearly had um, a friendship and there was a connection there and um, I became intrigued um, looking in actually the manuscript of this particular um, opera um, which is in the archives of the of the Paris Opera and there were two versions of this scene one that was you know relatively good um, and then one that was really terrible that was, you know, about a fourth as long. It was a, a, a radically shortened, abbreviated version of the scene that, that's absolutely terrible. And I became intrigued with the idea of why this exists, because I couldn't come up with any artistic reason for it to be there. I couldn't even really think of a reason um, politically why they wouldn't want um, this scene to be, uh, to be staged in that way. Um, and I finally came to the idea that um, maybe it had something to do with um, this conspiracy, which um, there's a lot of indication that it was just really a setup, that it was, um, they, they, they picked these, these four guys, set them up sort of to prove that, you know, they had ill intent against um, Napoleon. Um, and so um, uh, my, the theory that I present in, in the paper is there, there's a part in this, in the, what I think is the original version of the scene, you know, that is where there's this very loud chord that's played um, by the full orchestra, the brass just blaring away um, that could be easily heard. Um, that goes away in the revised version, and I actually speculate that what actually happened was they were set up to think that, you know, that was going to be the signal for the attack, but what was actually performed was this radically shortened um, version that um, omitted the cue for that. So that that never happened, they weren't able to, to strike, and then they could be arrested, um, uh, you know, armed with you know with their daggers and whatever in in the hallway. So they were guilty in the sense that you know, they went along with it, but not in the sense that they actually came up with this idea. I think it was a complete setup. So so the they the whoever set them up, which we don't know, right? I mean, they 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 conspired with the whole orchestra and the whole opera company. To do the shortened version. Yeah. Well, that you know, you don't even have to tell the the orchestra what's actually happening. I suppose <laughs> um, you're just saying, okay, we're going to perform this version tonight. Um, so, but but it's but we do know that the authorities were in contact with the management of the opera. So the the management, I think, clearly knew. Um, but the musicians will play what's put in front of them, and they you know they're not going to ask why necessarily. Um, so it's a sting. So it was a sting. A, it was a sting. Absolutely, I think it was a sting, um, and. 
And I just thought it was interesting that I think that the best evidence that something like that happened was actually in the music itself, because there are these two different versions, one of which is just so terrible. I, I can't imagine what other reason it was it was for. But there, you know, there there is all kinds of documentary suggestion that there is a connection between that scene and the and the conspiracy. So they never attack. They, they never attack. No, they're arrested in the hallways, um, and you know, armed, and you know, uh, there's a um, and. Uh, an individual who's been working with the police to get them uh, to this point so he can testify against them, um, you know, that um, they went through this this whole process. Um, it's a very fascinating story. Yeah, so the, I mean, is it Napoleon, so he, he knows about, every, it goes to court and everything else, right? Right. Like everyone, there was an attack on, there was an attempted yeah. attack on Napoleon's life. So is it possible that that Napoleon himself could have helped orchestrate it to kind of build his legend? Oh, I think so. I think that's um, that's definitely um, part of that, and you know, it, it would create an aura of almost invincibility, um, and you know, and and also make a public um, spectacle of these individuals who are arrested as you know as a warning for others who might attempt it. I, I think he, he clearly knew, um, but. Um, we also know that he was very careful as to what actually got, uh, what kind of information was released and reported. Um, and so some of the sources that I use are actually um, British spy reports from the era because the British had agents uh, working for them in Paris who would um, uh, let them know what was going on in the city. Um, and so I found that when you deal with the politi politics of this particular era, I deal a lot with the 19th century, um, the public sources of information with, within the country itself tend to be highly censored and carefully controlled. Um, but if you look outside the country, you'll actually find um, a lot more interesting information. And, and didn't you mention that the, the reports of the attackers was exaggerated? Like, didn't they say yeah. there was like 60 and then yeah, like four? Yeah, there, there were, you know, these, the, you know, the rumor gets out that there were a lot more than there could possibly have, have been. Um, and certainly in this case, there were, there were four individuals, um, who, who were arrested. Three were actually in the theater. One was in his home, um, but was uh, still connected to the, uh, to the plot. So they, they were committed anti-Napoleonists, but they were really just patsies. Yeah, they were really just patsies. Um, so, the, I mean, they, like, as I said, they were guilty in the sense they went along with this plan, but it was, it doesn't seem to have been their, their pl plot all along. This seems to have been a, a, elaborate ruse used by the authorities to catch them. So the the painting that they're that they're replicating on stage is really meant to inspire great patriotism and and a love of of France in general or Right, I, and, and that's uh, the, the way the painting worked and um, in my presentation I you know I demonstrated some of the ways that Napoleon used um, this painting and the myth associated with it um, to glorify um, himself and you know his associates so that that's the thing I mean I, I don't think there's any possibility that it had to be shortened because you know they were concerned about the French becoming too patriotic because essentially um, Napoleon had embraced this myth as a symbol of his own um, uh, you know his own power and prestige so opera at this time was was it I mean we consider opera well, I shouldn't say we Many people consider opera like high culture, 
But at this point, is opera like popular culture, or is it st- is it more elevated for the elite? Um, there are elements of of both there, particularly in Paris, um, but um, it's it really isn't the kind of you know we think of it as you as you say as a kind of elitist art form now. But it really wasn't necessarily that was especially true in Italy, um, where and and still to today to a certain extent it's still thought of as more of a popular. Um, art form, um, but it was you know it was certainly accessible to um, the masses, um, and it, you know it was open to um, you know to to anyone who who could be in you know in in the theater. Um, so uh, it, it do- didn't really have the same kind of um, elitist aura to it. So let's. Uh Let's take our first break, and and then we'll we'll continue this conversation. So, we are not starting with an opera song. As, as anyone who listens to us before know, we ask our guests to choose some songs that that resonate or are relevant to them. And uh, Doctor Ibsen, you you gave us some good ones, but I want to start with one. And I got to tell you, I was surprised with the list that you gave us. Happily so, uh, but I want to start with a song called. A Horse With No Name, which is a very popular song by the band America. Can you tell me why you chose that song? Um, I, I chose this um, because um, uh, it, there, there is a long-running gag in my family that, that deals with this, uh, with this song. Um, everyone in my family knows that my mother does not like this song. Um, and um, she's never liked the song. And so... Um, my brothers and I have, a, you know, a, a sort of long history of trolling my mother um, with this song. So um, I, my oldest brother sometimes would, um, when the, it came on the radio, um, at, you know, at his place of business, he would call my mom and then put her on hold. Um, and the hold music was that particular radio station, so she had to listen to the song. Um, I actually, years ago, I actually um, set it up so when she turned on her computer, it would start playing that every time she turned it on. Um, so it's just, um, uh, I, I'm very fond of the song because it's, it, it represents the humor that we have um, in my family. And I, I will say, as, as a musician, as somebody who, who's interested in music theory, I'm fascinated by this song because it's really built basically on two different chords. There's only really two chords in this particular song. And, to, you know, to, to keep a song interesting and fresh for as long as it, you know, as it goes on, built primarily on these two chords. They're very interesting chords, but just really two chords. Okay, Uh, Mrs. Ibsen, this is for you. Uh, A Horse with No Name by America.
answer You can't remember your name Cause there ain't no one for to give you no pain That was A Horse With No Name by the band America. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Faith. We're here with uh, Dr. Douglas Ipson, uh, an assistant professor of music history and theory here at SUU. And we were just talking about uh, this uh, opera and politics and, and the attempted assassination of Napoleon Bonaparte. And there, in your presentation today, you talked about some epilogues of other things that that had happened. Can you kind of tie those things, the the tie the pieces together? Yeah. So there is um, this very strange sort of series of postludes to um, the event that I talk about in my presentation, which was was eighteen hundred, um, and one was actually later that year. There was actually an attempt to to blow up Napoleon's carriage as he was on his way um, to the opera to, to hear a performance of, um, of a piece of music. Um, and then, oh, about 20 years after that, um, there was um, another conspiracy against, this was after the fall of Bonaparte, the return of the, uh, the, the Bourbon uh, regime, um, but a, a essentially a member of the, the, the Bourbon uh, family, um, a person who would have been heir to the throne um, eventually, um, was actually stabbed to death um, outside the theater. They actually took him inside the theater, and that's where he actually died. 
Um, so that was the early 1820s. Um, and then 1858, um, when Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, Napoleon III, had become um, emperor, there was yet another attempt to blow up his carriage when he was on um, his way um, to uh, the opera. So there was th this very s weird series of efforts to um, uh, uh, to assassinate um, the rulers of France or their, you know, immediate family, um, uh, you know, at the opera. Which I just I, I was just fascinated by this very weird um, set of coincidences. But it, it underscores um, how often opera and politics were intertwined. Um, during this this particular era. Yeah, so two things I want to ask. First of all, we should mention, because I don't think we mentioned it, the title of that painting that you were talking about, the oath is the... The Oath of the Horatii. Horatii. I was going to say Magi, but I knew that wasn't right. The Oath of the Horatii, uh, which was a beautiful painting. I mean, we, it's, it's a, you should look it up. Secondly, was this opera very good? Uh, competent, but not, not particularly very good. But... Um, sort of representative of its era. You know, if you look at the history of opera, uh, one of the weakest decades in, in the whole history of this particular genre is 1800 to 1810. There are very few operas from, from that period that were actually, uh, that are, we still recognize and uh, that are performed today. So um, not that great, but in many respects representative of, of what was going on. Some of it had to do obviously with, you know, political upheaval um, and, um, you know, maybe maybe artists weren't devoting themselves as much to their art as they were to, um, you know, the political statements that they felt like they needed to make during that time. So that was actually the uh, the the words I always get on my evaluations is competent. It was competent. So so the you know my own work when I was in grad school and, and in the in the and continuing on is this connection of rock and roll. Right, I talk about rock and roll and its connection to culture and. And politics, and so I'm very fascinated by this idea of how music and politics intertwine, specifically in in the field in which you study to, from your discipline. So, can you talk a little bit about some instances where where they really mesh together? Yeah. So, um, my ultimate specialty, um, my sub sub specialty, if you will, in in what I do. It, deals with the, the operas of a composer, Italian composer, Giuseppe Verdi, probably the most important um, Italian composer um, of all time, certainly the most Im important Italian opera composer. Um, and Verdi uh, it, it begins his career really in the 1840s um, at a period when there is no unified Italy. Italy is carved up into a bunch of um, different pieces that are under the rule of you know, uh, different entities um, Austria chiefly, particularly in, um, in northern Italy, and there's a, there's a, a very large movement um, to unify and to win independence for um, Italy. Um, it's called the Risorgimento, which means resurgence. Um, and um, Verdi was very much an Italian patriot um, who wanted to see this happen. And um, his operas from this period um, are full of themes that um, if, if, if we understand them as political allegories are clearly arguing for Italian independence and unity. So his, his first hugely successful opera is, is called Nabucco, um, which is it's actually an opera about Nebuchadnezzar um, from the Old Testament. 
um, and it's about um, the ancient Hebrews um, um, under Babylonian captivity yearning to be free. Um, and it, it's absolutely clear that this was understood as a metaphor for the Italian situation, um, that um, they were um, you know, in, in, essentially in bondage to Austria, um, who you know, the Austrians were represented as the Babylonians in the, in the opera. Um, and these themes circulate through um, his operas. Another one is about Attila the Hun, um, which, I mean, is even more obvious because it's the idea is that you have this barbarian from the north trying to conquer Italy, and then he's repulsed, pushed back by the, uh, the valiant um, Italians of, of, of that day. Um, and where this is clearly a metaphor for, for Italian aspirations for independence um, and unity. And um, so there, there is this very much an important element here of um, politics in um, opera uh, in the 19th century. And, you know, the other, the other measurement of this is that frequently the authorities are censoring anything that might remotely um, be interpreted as, um, a, as a political statement. Um, censorship was really um, a strong force, particularly in Italy and in France and in, in much of the 19th century. So are people getting that at the time? Like the people that are watching Verdi's operas, are they connecting that thing and, and, and getting those points? That's a really interesting question, and there actually is um, a considerable recent debate among historians. There are some revisionist historians who, who argue that that's been exaggerated and that probably weren't understood. Um, the work that I've been doing um, in this area shows that absolutely they they understood the, the these were really recognizable metaphors that that recur not only in opera but um, in um, in other literary forms in in you know all kinds of of different ways. For example, during the revolutions of 1848, um, the Italians are constantly referring to um, their the Austrians as Huns as you know Attila you know the modern Attila. Um, so th these are metaphors that you know are so very prominent. It, it's impossible to think that th that people didn't understand um, the kinds of political allegory that were going on in these operas. So yes, I think they absolutely understood those. So it's like he's like Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie, right? Protest songs, yeah, to to inspire. Um, yeah, and 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 so this is just the period when when this really begins because. Um, you know, in, in earlier centuries, it just, you know, having this kind of uh, politically themed, you know, art, at least in, in, in terms of questioning authority, was, was, was almost unthinkable. People would lose their, you know, you'd lose their lives for this. I mean, it, it isn't so much a, a matter of speaking truth to power. It's more speaking power to truth. Um, it's sort of the inverse of, of that in, in, a, in a lot of things. But it's in the 19th century that we start getting this politically themed art. It's not just music, but in the visual arts um, and um, in literature. Um, I've, I've been uh, recently reviewing Les Miserables by uh, Victor Hugo, the great uh, French novel of the 19th century, and it's, it, you know, it, it's full of that kind of thing. And, and we see that, I mean, you showed some images of that idea of Napoleon, you, the artists that are painting the political elite as almost godlike to gain favor and to, to show that, and then they use those as, you know, popular representations of themselves. Right. Um, yeah, so, so it, it, you know, it really works both ways. I mean, there are people who are begin to question, but there's also, you know, there's a pushback and, and, and an appropriation of image and music by, um, by ruling authority. So how, how is opera funded back then? 
Um, so uh, th that's a really good question. Um, there, there is some amount of uh, state subsidizing of opera even back then, but um, to a large extent, opera, particularly in Italy, um, is is publicly funded. In fact, really, opera is the f really the first type of music that has a kind of um, you know popular um, economic basis. Um, the first public opera theater was opened in 1637 um, in in Venice. Um, and it really starts to revolutionize sort of the, the economic basis of music making, where really the money was, you know, selling tickets, um, selling um, usually what you'd do is you'd sell a subscription series of performances. But, um, but um, having a, you know, a, a, a more commercially viable um, system of um, musical support rather than, you know, in earlier generations, it was more of a feudal system where, you know, you, you were um, essentially a servant to some wealthy and powerful individual um, uh, as a musician if you wanted full-time employment. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's to the point in the 19th century that Rossini, one of the great Italian opera composers, um, retired at the age of 37. Huh. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's unthinkable that somebody before that, uh, because he, he could, there, there, he did have some... Uh, uh, money that, that from, from the government in terms of a pension, but um, you know, largely he can live off the uh, the royalties of selling printed music and the the endless performances um, of his music. It's you know obviously aided by legal mechanisms like copyright um, that become useful <coughs> um, to you know to protect the not only the creative but also the financial interests of these um, composers. Verdi. Um, became very successful, um, uh, also because he was very, you know, a very shrewd m man when it came to business and money, um, and so that's that's something that's, you know, part of this 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 shift. Um, but m large institutions like the Paris Opera, as I discuss in my uh, in my presentation, were publicly funded um, institutions as well. So these the folks that were censoring Verdi. Were they were they like not they, they didn't want a unified Italy, or I guess that's my, my yeah I mean definitely because in most cases they were either Austrians or employed by the Austrians. Um, Verdi's um, operas, early operas were frequently premiered in Milan, which was the second largest city in the Austrian Empire at the time. You know we think of it as obviously being an Italian city, a great city for fashion and culture, which it always has been since at least since. Um, the 18th century, but in fact, it was thought of as an Austrian city because it was an Austrian possession. So, no, the Austrians were not terribly uh, pleased to see um, efforts to. So he was taking that money and using it to to create a sub, in there a somewhat subversive yeah. message to the funders. Yes, in, in, in that that certainly is is one way um, to think about it because. You know, the most famous opera house in, in, in Milan, um, still there, I'm still open for business, the Teatro La Scala, or we, we just simply call it La Scala, um, you know, w was actually known as the Imperial and Royal Theater <laughs> of La Scala. Um, and the idea here is that you couldn't be overt um, in, in your politics, so that was why they were using metaphors in their works to, to be sub subversive, and that's, that's really a great word. Um, that they were able to do, and, and um, it's really an extraordinary um, sort of thing to, to to see from the vantage point of you know a couple centuries removed. 
So where where do we can we pinpoint the the first opera like that we say this this is the beginning of this new form, and, and if we can, what is the forerunner of that? Um, so opera begins at the very end of the 1500s, um, and um, it it begins um, with um, a group of um, Italians. Um, who were interested in the arts um, in the city of Florence, um, who got talking about ancient theater, and they became absolutely convinced that ancient Greek and Roman theater was sung rather than spoken. Um, and there are good reasons to, to, to think that they might be right about that. I mean, these were plays that were written in verse. They were performed outdoors. Singing helps project um, to you know, outdoor audiences. Um, they have this feature called the chorus, um, you know, you have to figure out how a chorus functions in this. Is it one person speaking or mul multiple people speaking? But if you assume it's sung, that seems to solve the problem. Um, and so the, the earliest operas um, began in, in Florence. Um, and uh, the, the, the first opera that, that we know of, that, that we actually have the music for, um, it comes right around 1600. Um, and um, it's, it's an opera on the subject of the, the myth of Orpheus, which was very popular among early opera composers because it made sense. Orpheus is this mythological figure who goes into the underworld to save his beloved Eurydice, and in order to get into the underworld, he uses music to charm you know, anyone who might oppose his being in the underworld. So it's a, it, it's a, uh, a fable about the power of music. Um, and so um, that's really the first opera that we actually have music for. Um, the, the earliest opera that anyone ever performs is an, another opera on the same subject by Claudio Monteverdi at 1607. So it's really right around 1600 that that, that genre as we recognize it comes to the fore. So opera is, is coming up at the age where Shakespeare is just kind of finishing. Right. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, it, one way to look at Shakespeare, too, though, um, if you're familiar with Shakespeare, this is true of many of the plays, the comedies especially, um, they frequently have songs interspersed in them. Um, and um, so th there, there are these other forms of um, theatrical entertainment that involve music and singing. Um, we, don't, we don't think of Shakespeare as writing musicals or operas. But, but in fact, um, there, there often are songs that are um, integrated into um, his in, into his plays. So, um, you know, when when we say you know opera begins around 1600, we also have to recognize, you know, there are other things that have anticipated it. Um, it's it's the idea that we're going to have this th this um, art form that's mostly or thoroughly sung all the way through. That I think is is the real novel breakthrough. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Let's take our second break, and we will hear a Verdi piece. Uh, the one you chose is uh, La Donna e Mobile, Mo, Mobile, Mobile yeah. uh, from Rigoletto. And this version is performed by Luciana Pavarotti. Can you tell us why you chose this? Um, so this is going back to the, the, you know, our, our first segment. Um, this is from um, an opera uh, by, by Verdi, and it was one of the, the pieces that was performed on that first Met uh, opera broadcast that I saw when I was 13. Um, and so I chose it um, for sentimental reasons, but also because, you know, I'm a, I'm a devoted um, Verdi fan, and this is probably the most famous melody he ever wrote. Okay, this is La Donna Immobile, performed by Pavarotti. Mm -hmm. 
That was Le Donne Immobile by Luciano Pavarotti. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'm turning it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Faith. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, and actually this is the truth, that I don't know a lot about opera, but I, I am f- interested in learning more. So am I better off diving in with a PBS full opera? Are there selected pieces? What, what does someone who is a casual interest in opera, where, where do we begin? Honestly, I, it, the, the world that we live in today is, is different than the world where I first became um, introduced to opera. And um, I, I think that it's the most obvious answer I could give is that YouTube is such a wonderful resource um, and um, one of one of the great things about um, YouTube um, is is its wide expansiveness. Um, and so, um, you know, even even just simply um, doing a search for opera or taking the name of a composer or a, a, of a title that you may be familiar with, um, and and just you know experiencing you know both 
the the visual and you know the the and especially the musical elements of that. Um, and I think that um, I think most people w will find that you know they're recognizing these tunes because a lot of them have become part of our collective subconscious. Um, and that might be, I, I think, the way um, that, that I might um, begin. There's, there's a wealth of, of, of things um, available to us um, online these days, um, which, which I, didn't, I didn't have that. Um, and so I was really you know, glad that I had that introduction via um, uh, PBS. And I still encourage if you, you know, when you have those opportunities on um, uh, PBS or um, you know, other, other, other networks to take advantage of those. So is this what you listen to in your car? Um, very frequently. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's part of, you know, you know, it's sort of the soundtrack of my life in many respects. Um, and w one of the other things I love to do is, is actually to sit at the piano and play them. Um, I feel like um, I don't really know a piece of music until I can, I actually can feel it in my fingers. Um, and so that's, I, I believe that's a really important part for, at least for me, um, in learning and understanding music. So have you, as a composer, you've composed things as well. How, uh, how do you begin doing that? Not like, how do you like, I want to be a composer, but I, I would have no conception of saying, I'm going to create something out of the same notes that have existed forever. That's unique and brand new. Um, I don't know that there's one particular approach um, to, to doing things. Um, it usually begins um, with an idea of what I want to do or, you know, what I'm, um, you know, who I'm writing for. Um, so to, just to take an example, I had a, a student approach me a while back and uh, who's one of our very talented voice students, um, and she asked if, if I would write a set of songs uh, for her, her senior recital. Um, and so, um, so I thought about it and what I wanted to do, um, and you know, I, I really began with, um, uh, in this case, with with poetry. Um, I, I chose poems by um, the uh, the British poet uh, Christina Rossetti. Um, she was actually um, uh, an Italian British uh, poet. Her father was an Italian um, exile because of political reasons. He had to leave Italy, and he settled in Britain. And um, she wrote a, a number of Italian poems, including a number of nursery rhymes in Italian. Uh, and I chose different um, nursery rhymes on different animals um, that uh, she, had, she had written about. And so um, I, I really begin with, you know, in this case when I'm dealing with uh, vocal music, I'm beginning with a text that gives me some sort of idea, um, you know, as to how fast, how slow, um, what style, um, you know, am I going to, in this case, am I going to imitate the, the animal in some way, which I do. I mean, I have a song about a rooster. I mean, how do you not? Um, so, it, it, and it really is, um, you know, you, you look at, at um, you know, what it is you want to accomplish, and um, it's really a combination of things that happen very quickly in, in terms of a quick inspiration and then other details that really have to be worked out um, carefully and, and, and systematically. And so there's not one answer to that, but um, really a combination of, of different um, inspirations. So we, we've talked about your connection to, to opera, but I'd like to just briefly talk about your connection to music in general. I mean, was there a time 
do you remember the time when you when you realized that music was part of your soul yeah that that's an interesting question and and um my parents love to tell this story i have three older brothers um all of them are um are athletes and they've been um, remarkably successful in business and so forth they all had piano lessons before me and um uh, you know they didn't really enjoy it or, or or take advantage of it and my parents um as they often say um thought about not giving me piano lessons it had been just a waste of money for for uh, uh my my older brothers and for whatever reason they felt like no this is this is worth one more chance we'll send you know the fourth son to piano lessons and see what happens um and it didn't take very long uh, before i realized that music was the thing that i just absolutely loved so by the time i was 10 or 11 perhaps I kind of knew that this is what I loved and this is um, what I want to do and I I never really looked back I always knew I was going to be doing something um, having to do with with music um, because I just you know I took to it very very quickly Um, and and it was like a language that made perfect sense to me and it always has music is very much like a language Um, and it's you know my, my second language almost my first language in many respects um, and so it's just always been something that just spoke to my soul but also that that made perfect rational sense um, to me and um, so really by, by the time I was 10 or 11 probably I, I was determined I was going to be a musician and now you teach it too now I teach it yeah let's pass that on well let's let's take our, our final break and we, we, you talked about your your high school days and musical theater and this is a song you chose from the musical my fair lady uh called i could have danced all night uh, why did you choose this one um this is one of my very favorite musicals it was my favorite musical um, when i was in high school it's um, written by um Lerner and Lowe, and um people who went to high school with me may have actually remember that you know the the picture i had in my locker at school was actually a picture of Lerner and Lowe, <laughs> which is maybe the nerdiest thing um of all. Um, but um, I love this tradition, what we think of as the, the, the golden age of the Broadway musical in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, sometimes we think about Broadway as being a tradition where everybody wears their hearts on their sleeve and everyone sings about how they're feeling in songs. But if you stop and think about these classic Broadway shows, they don't actually do that very often. Um, Love songs in Broadway shows, I often refer to them as the equivocal love song, where people are actually saying, not coming out and saying what they feel. They, they, they will either be, it'll be a conditional or ironic, you know. It's almost like being in love or if I loved you, these great songs from the Broadway tradition. And this is another example of somebody who's actually revealing her feelings subconsciously when she's saying, I could have danced all night. Um, you know, she's, she's talking, it's not really the dancing that she's, you know, and there, the, the, even the way the, 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 the song is structured, I only know when he began to dance with me. There's this wonderful emphasis of he there that is so wonderfully subtle. And I, I don't think we appreciate um, Broadway musicals for their subtlety enough, but this is a good example of that. Okay, this is I Could Have Danced All Night from My Fair Lady, performed by Julie Andrews. Too light to try to set it down. 
Sleep, sleep, I couldn't sleep tonight. Not for all the jewels in the crown. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night and still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things. Never know what made it so exciting. Why all at once my heart took flight. I only know when it began to dance with me. I could have danced, danced, danced all about three now. Don't you? To be in bed, I could have died out all night. I could have died out all night. Just say good night, please turn out the light. Please, it's really time for you to be in bed. I could have spread to come along to Edgerton. Or Mrs. Pierce is apt to serve. You're up too late, please, and choose late. Miss, you can't I Could Have Danced All Night from the musical My Fair Lady, performed by Julie Andrews. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Faith. So we're here with our our guest, Dr. Douglas uh, Ibsen, who is the 2024-2024 Grace A. Tanner Distinguished Faculty Lecturer. And uh, this is the final segment of our program. This is where we talk about what's bringing us joy 
First of all, we want to thank you for being with us uh, on the radio hour today. We appreciate it, Dr. Ibsen. So we'll start with this. Dr. Douglas Ibsen, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? One of the things I'm watching right now is, and again, it's, it's one of the, the marvels of the age that we, you know, we live in. Um, one of the sitcoms I loved when I was, when I was very young, um, which is now available on, on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime, um, and I haven't seen it in, in years. Um, and so those of a certain age might remember there, in the 80s there was a sitcom called Benson <laughs> with Robert Guillaume, um, who was absolutely wonderful. Um, um, also, by the way, musical. Th- in fact, almost everyone in that cast has a musical theater background. Um, and it's one of those shows I, I, I wondered, you know, I wonder if it holds up. I loved this show when I was a kid. And so I've been rewatching it, and I am delighted to report that I think it absolutely holds up. I've absolutely been um, delighted with it. So it's, um, it's the show I, wa- I watch when I do my workout in the morning, and I'm absolutely, uh, absolutely delighted that I, I still love it. Boy, I haven't thought about that show for, I can see myself watching it in my house in Riverdale. I haven't thought about that for a long time. All right, uh, Faith Christensen, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Uh, well, I thought about that again for maybe less time than I did last week, but um, <laughs> the thing that's bringing me temporal joy right now is playing a video game called Capital Reef, I think. I'm more focused on the game than the title, to be honest. But um, it's a farming simulator where you leave town, you leave the big city, and you have this farm, and you just, you know, harvest your crops, get to know the locals. And in almost all farming simulating games that I've played, which is not many at all, all of them are like, wouldn't it be nice just to leave the city, just to get away from it all, and just be in the wild, the environment? And I'm like, yeah, that would be nice. So that's what's been kind of bringing me some joy right now. Good. Yeah. What about you, Ryan? What are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing? The whole shebang of the question. I'm actually playing a game called Tiny Towns, and it's a board game. It's not online, so it's, you know, old school. But it's a game where you've got a a four-by-eight grid, and you have resources that come up randomly on these cards, and you have to use little cubes to put resources down to build different kinds of structures that score different points. And it's challenging because you have to be very strategic in your thinking, right? Because you can't lift resources up into your building. And and uh, it can be unbelievably frustrating, but unbelievably joyful. So tiny towns, that's what's currently bringing me joy. So Dr. Ibsen, thank you for joining us on the Apex, Eccles Apex Radio Hour. And we're going to go out today with another song you've chosen, uh, the Haydn Symphony Number no. 88, the fourth movement. This one's performed by the New York Philharmonic. Why did you choose this one? Well, first, uh, thanks for having me um, on, on the program. Um, this is one of my very favorite pieces of instrumental um, music. And if, if you're talking about things that absolutely bring me joy, this particular piece does. And so this is this is very frequently the piece I choose for my for my pick me up. Um, it is just a, a wonderful few minutes of what could only be described as musical laughter. Okay, this is Haydn's Symphony Number no. 88, Fourth Movement, performed by the New York Philharmonic, and thanks for listening. 